the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. I repeat, the German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. There was no Allied confirmation. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force. You are about to embark upon the Great Crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon and welcome to a very special edition of Lifeline. I'm Craig Roberts and today as we mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day, essentially the beginning of the end of World War II and the Allied victory, we spend time giving salute and tribute to those many brave men who risked their lives and in many cases lost their lives so that Europe and all of the world might be free. One of the special guests to join us on today's program is broadcast journalist Rita Cosby, who joins us to talk about her book, Quiet Hero. We'll have that and some other special guests all straight ahead on this special D-Day tribute from Lifeline and KFAX. The date was June 6, 1944. Most of America was still sleeping as the sun rose that faithful morning over the coast of Normandy, France. Before the sun would set, thousands of young men would give their lives on a beach named after the heartland of America, Omaha. Men with names like Joe, Tommy, and Bill. Men we'll never meet. Fathers, brothers, and sons who will never return to the land of freedom for which they died. The announcement of the turning point of the war in Europe came in many tongues the French of Charles de Gaulle, the Polish of a foreign minister in exile, the Norwegian of King Hauken. Landsmen, some days it is to war, some hatal sickte for frigoring of Europa's unattractive folk. Back home, America heard of the battle for freedom waged by her brave sons from ABC's George Hicks, reporting from the deck of the headquarters ship Ancon. Our own ship has just gave its morning whistles, and now the flak is coming up in the sky. Looks like we're going to have a night tonight. Get them there, boys! Another one coming over. 
And as the sun came up over cities like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, the message all the world waited for came from the man leading the invasion to halt Nazi tyranny and restore liberty. This is Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Together we shall achieve victory. D-Day, June 6th, 1944. A date when thousands of America's finest gave their lives so that millions could live in freedom all over the world. We, who today live to enjoy the fruit of your sacrifice, salute you. Now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Wherever you might be headed, awfully delighted you've taken us along here tonight. We've got a full and exciting program, and boy, what a treat we have as we meet our first guest tonight. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, 
and indeed throughout the world, except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. The irony of that observation made by then-British Prime Minister Winston Churchill in the summer of 1940, because looking back in history, not only does the entirety of Europe, perhaps all of mankind, owe so much to this incredible man. It was in the summer of 1940, in that address that you heard a moment ago, that Winston Churchill faced a terrible dilemma. France had surrendered, and only the English Channel stood between the Nazis and Britain. Germany was now poised to seize the entire French fleet, one of the biggest in the world at the time, and Churchill had to make a choice. Trust the French not to surrender or take over the fleet himself by sinking it. This was just one of many, many very difficult decisions that Winston Churchill had to make. Make them he did, and of course, ultimately, went down in history as not only one of the greatest military minds of our time, but perhaps one of the greatest minds of our time and leaders of our time. More about the life of Winston Churchill inside the pages of a unique new book. It's called God and Churchill, How the Great Leader's Sense of Divine Destiny Changed His Troubled World and Offers Hope for Ours. Joining us now is co-author of this new book, the great-grandson of Sir Winston Churchill, Jonathan Sands. And Jonathan, what a delight and honor to have you join us tonight. Well, thank you very much indeed. It's a great delight and honor to be with you tonight. Thank you. Your great-grandfather, as we suggested, um, left an indelible mark on history. Down through the years, of course, there have been dozens, hundreds, really, of books on your great-grandfather, his role in history. What's different about this new book? Well, this book actually explores the faith that my great-grandfather had. Throughout the time since his death, people have written him off as either an agnostic or an atheist, and he was neither. And Gordon Churchill very much brings that to light, the evidence that we have provided in it. And, of course, that evidence looks at uh, not just the area where typically we tend to focus, and that is his role as prime minister from 1940 to 45, and again from, uh, from 50, 50 to 55. But you really take a look at the totality of not just his military career, his political career, but even his, his young days growing up. Yes. You need, in order to be able to see this, you actually be able, need to be able to see Churchill's life as a whole. To take one story basically would argue, you could argue that that was luck. You could say that, you know, it didn't happen. But to take it in the context of his entire life, you see that he couldn't possibly have survived without divine intervention. He has down through the years in history been made out to be at times reckless, a non-believing, uh, overindulger. Growing up as a young man, uh, he passed away, I believe, about 10 years before you were born. But growing up, what kind of stories within the family did you hear about your great-grandfather? Well, I was told that he was basically a cuddly teddy bear. Uh, everybody wanted to, to know him and sit at his feet and talk to him. My father actually spent a lot of time with him, talking to him about his experience throughout his life, but also particularly World War II. I'm very jealous because I very much wish that I had had that opportunity. In these conversations that you heard, um, 
Give us some insights. Um, clearly, as you suggest inside the pages of God and Churchill, the story as we have typically heard it uh, from other biographers, even his own official biographer, is, is, is generally not really been complete. One of the big insights that you offer in this new book is, is a sense of your great-grandfather's having a divine appointment, certainly a, a, an appointment with destiny, to be sure. Give us, give us some more thought on that. Well, we actually begin the book by actually talking about a prediction he had, or a prophecy he had, rather, at the age of 16 years old in 1891. Uh, it was a complete impossible prediction that he made that one day London would be attacked, he would be in charge of the forces of London, and that he would lead London and England to, uh, to a victory. And in 1891, it was completely impossible because... In order to reach London, you needed to have an aircraft, and aircraft hadn't really been invented, so that was impossible. But then to continue and predict that he would be in charge of the forces of London, and indeed that he would lead England and the Empire to victory, was, that was just impossible. Certainly, of course, we know that uh, much of that prediction ended up being uh, startlingly very accurate. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is incredibly accurate. Um, it, religions around the world really agree that in order for a prediction to actually become a prophecy, it has to be fulfilled in the way that it has been spoken. And otherwise, a prediction can be given by anybody and it may not come true. So this very definitely was a prophecy. And, and so, and w But one of the most interesting things that we discovered in the research was Churchill wasn't alone in having a, in having a prophecy or having a prediction. Hitler himself also had a similar prediction at the age of 16 years old in 1905, and obviously that was for, for saving Germany. And it, finding this information actually brought me to tears because I realized in that moment that we could have saved 60 million lives. If Hitler had done as my great-grandfather had done and looked for peace and not looked for war, then history would be totally different today. All of the accolades and glory that my great-grandfather has been given, generously given by the world, would have actually been given to Adolf Hitler right. had he been prepared to humble himself and, as, we, as Churchill did, put service above self. Your great-grandfather certainly had a, a tremendous sense of, of destiny about the role that he was called upon to, to play. I think that is repeated uh, quite frequently within uh, many of his speeches down through the years. Um, and, and certainly as we look at him, I'm, I'm curious, how, how deep did you have to dig for the story of, of his sense of faith to come to the service. And I ask that question tonight, Jonathan, because so often people say, well, you know, he was a great political leader, but kind of dismisses about any sense of, of him being a man of, of faith. And yet, let's be honest, he was um, in the position as prime minister of England. He wasn't, uh, the, uh, wasn't the Archbishop of Canterbury. So we would expect him to take on a more political role, certainly, rather than a religious role. And yet, as you indicate inside the book, uh, his sense of both divine destiny and, and providence and leadership of God is very clear. Yeah, I agree with you. Churchill himself, a, politician, a lot of politicians these days actually roll God out um, to win votes or win support and things like that. Winston Churchill actually believed what he was talking about. He was asked 
to become prime minister. He didn't seek the office in any shape or form. So there was no need for him to roll God out. And it's very true that what you are prepared to say in public, you must also say and live out indeed in private. And great-grandpa did do that. The evidence was there. It was quite easy to see that there was more to the story. And the three stories that we bring up in the book actually are the three stories that convinced me there was more to the story than meets the eye. But there was actually a very telling time uh, where Churchill actually did state very clearly what he believed. And that was during the Blitz in, 19, in, the, in 1940. He used to like going to walk in St. James's Park, which is very close to Tendown Street. And he'd go there sort of late at night. Suddenly, on one occasion, the sirens went off. And he and his, uh, his bodyguard, Commander Walter Thompson, quickly or rather briskly walked back or were walking back to number 10. And on the way, they suddenly heard an explosion. And both of them turned around and looked. And just at the point where great-grandpa had been standing, a bomb had exploded. If he had waited one more minute, he would most definitely have been killed. Anyway, Commander Thompson, who was always fretting that he felt Churchill was always putting himself in unnecessary danger, hoped that this would teach great-grandpa a lesson. Churchill looked at him and with an eerie confidence said, don't worry, there is someone looking after me besides you. Hmm. Thompson initially misunderstood this and asked, do you mean Sergeant Davis? To which great-grandpa replied, no. And he pointed to the sky and said, I have a mission to perform, and that person intends to see it is performed. From Churchill's own lips, he confesses that he believes in God. Clearly so. And of course, much of his actions in terms of, you know, he, he's often uh, celebrated for that tenacity. Um, those that perhaps uh, are old enough to, to remember the era or, era or certainly have seen photographs uh, have that image of your great-grandfather uh, carrying a cane in one hand and his gloves in another, walking through sections of bombed out uh, London, following the Blitz, uh, oftentimes the very next day, uh, with yeah. a tremendous sense of being fearless and, and just being there to give a sense of not only a Concern to the British people, uh, but but demonstrative of the fact that uh, th- this was a battle that had been enjoined and and uh, that the battle was not going to be uh, surrendered easily. And so I think there is that there is indeed that sense of a man who who walks knowing that he walks under the shadow of God and that there is a tremendous sense of not just divine appointment but divine protection about what he has been called to do at a unique place at a unique time in history. Very much so. I mean, Hitler himself ended up hiding in a bunker in Berlin, and Churchill believed that the people very much needed a visible leader. And he was that leader, and he was going to be visible. Once again, you see him putting others before himself, before his own life. You know, he did, he, he clearly firmly believed that he was protected, which is why he was prepared to take these risks. And, you know, it. it, it one would say some, in some cases that it was foolhardy. But if he hadn't been prepared to be visible, then I don't believe that he would have had the support. Remember, in 1940, he was basically asking the British people to jump off a cliff with him. And that effectively was, asking, it was, was what he was saying. And so he needed to show that he, too, was prepared to get his hands dirty, that he, too, was prepared to take the risks. 
And, and being visible was one of those ways that he showed that. Well, to be sure, there are times when leadership by direction is important. There are times when leadership by example is important. And undoubtedly, when it came to a sense of demonstrating courage in the face of Nazi terrorism and the Blitzkrieg, uh, Winston Churchill, above all others, embodied leadership by example. We're looking today at God and Churchill, how the great leader's sense of divine destiny changed his troubled world and offers new hope for ours. Our conversation with the great-grandson of Sir Winston Churchill, Jonathan Sands, continues in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. What General Vagon has called the Battle of France is over. The Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age, made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty, and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealths last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. There, of course, uh, Sir Winston Churchill in one of the darkest days in the history of England that delivered in the summer of 1940. And as we continue our conversation tonight with his great-grandson, Jonathan Sands, we look at God and Churchill, how the great leader's sense of divine destiny changed his troubled world and offers hope for ours. Um, the obvious capacity at wordsmithing there, uh, Jonathan, is incredible. Of course, your great-grandfather was a Nobel Prize winner in literature, and uh, certainly you can understand he understood the power of the word. But then, too, he spoke in early on in that Finest Hour speech about the survival of Christian civilization itself being at stake. It would seem to me, in order to make an observation like that, he clearly had to have understood deep down what he meant he was saying. Yes, he did very much understand that. Uh, you know, with Christian civilization, it's not really difficult to, to realize. I mean, he wasn't referring just to Christian civilization, but it was recognized that throughout the world, civilized countries had built their countries and their laws on things like the Ten Commandments. Churchill went further to say about the Sermon on the Mount, he felt that that was the last word in ethics. 
And, I mean, he really genuinely believed it. And he believed that if we followed it closely, then we were more certain to succeed in our endeavours. So, yes, he was very particular about Christian civilization because he recognised that with Christian civilization we were free. Whereas under the Nazis, their form of religion, their perverted form of religion, was most definitely not. And remember, when he's talking about perverted science, he's referring to, to you know, just culling races so that they're a pure Aryan and things like that, and manipulating them with science. He's talking about things for the future as well, I and mean, obviously nuclear weapons, the inventions of those. He spoke candidly about uh, about the things that we shouldn't the mysteries of the world that we shouldn't know at this moment in time and i firmly believe that nuclear weapons was one of those things that we we really shouldn't know about we aren't responsible enough to as a world to to be able to to handle that sort of information your great-grandfather seemingly had an uncanny ability to sort of size situations up. I mean, certainly well even before his assuming the role as prime minister, uh, going back to the time when his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain, uh, signed the Munich Accord with Germany, and everybody remembers the big famous speech there when he returned to uh, England that uh, we have got peace in our time and so forth and so on. Even then, your great-grandfather was warning about Adolf Hitler. And then I fast-forward into uh, the 19, late 1940s, post-World War II and into the 1950s. It was your great-grandfather who coined the phrase the Iron Curtain and, and so steadfastly had even warned the likes of President Roosevelt that Joseph Stalin could not be trusted and that communism was going to be the next dangerous threat that the world would be facing after Nazism. He, he seemed to have an uncanny ability to really understand not just the future, but also to get an understanding uniquely as to where these next dangerous pitfalls facing civilization would be. Well, Churchill, yes, he did certainly have an uncanny ability to know that, but it doesn't seem so strange if you do recognize the fact that there was divine intervention in his life. If he had just been pulling at straws and things like that, then that's another thing. But I'm of the firm belief that Churchill was sent to us for a purpose and you know I'm honored that he was my great-grandfather but I believe that he was a gift for the world and that that gift was the prophecy that that God was giving him that divine intervention came into his life at times and told him this is what's going to happen gave him that vision and he then spoke of it he wasn't always right but most of the time he was he had been, as a youth, a skeptic, which I think to a certain degree is not uncommon. I think all of us at some point in life, even if we were raised steadfastly and deeply in the church, come to to raise our own questions about our relationship with God, his existence, etc. But it was the foundation that you speak of inside the book God and Churchill, the foundation that a, a pivotal player in his life laid that, that really seems to kind of set the stage for his sense of not just destiny, but his firm faith. And that was his nanny, Elizabeth Everest. Tell us about her. Elizabeth Everest was something amazing. Uh, she, in, obviously, it was Victorian era, and parents preferred that their children were seen and not heard. Great-grandpa was one of those children who was just brushed aside. And if you were a, a rich family, you'd invariably employ a nanny 
to you know to look after the children and and you know they parents never changed diapers diapers or you know fed their children or anything like that so his first exposure to faith came through elizabeth everest and this woman sat with him she read him the bible stories and taught him those bible stories she taught him how to pray and prayed with him and she used to sing hymns to him and he used to sing those hymns back to her so you know it was that was his first exposure and as he said, you know, later on in life, as a youth, he did what we all do, and he walked away from God. And he didn't, you know, he started to question it. But for him, that questioning began when he started to, to look into uh, people, or he started to read people like Macaulay and read Gibbon and things like that. They had a worldview that was very different, and then Darwin came into it. And he started to really question it. But he did state very clearly that the doubts that he had had when he was in India, self-studying and looking at other religions, um, all of them had disappeared very quickly. Otherwise, he could have become a nuisance. So clearly, he had embraced he had embraced God, embraced Christianity as a faith and as his faith. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Today, a very special privilege. We are visiting with the great-grandson of Sir Winston Churchill, Jonathan Sands, co-author of a new book called God and Churchill, How the Great Leader's Sense of Divine Destiny Changed His Troubled World and Offers Hope for Ours. The new book, by the way, is published by Tyndale Momentum. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Bay Area bookstores, as well as through Amazon.com. We'll come back to more of our conversation with Jonathan Sands as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. In order to win the war, Hitler must destroy Great Britain. With every month that passes, the many proud and once happy countries he is now holding down by brute force and vile intrigue are learning to hate the Prussian yoke and the Nazi name as, as nothing has ever been hated so fiercely and so widely among men before. And all the time, masters of the sea and air, the British Empire, nay, in a certain sense, the whole English-speaking world, will be on his track, bearing with them the swords of justice. The other day, President Roosevelt gave his opponent in the late yeah, presidential no, no election I never to do it. a letter of introduction to me. And in it he wrote out a verse in his own handwriting uh, from Longfellow, which he said applies to you people as it does to us. Here is the verse. Sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity, with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. What is the answer that I shall give in your name to this great man, the thrice-chosen head of a nation of a hundred and thirty millions? Here is the answer which I will give to President Roosevelt. Put your confidence in us, 
Give us your faith and your blessing, and under providence all will be well. We shall not fail or falter, we shall not weaken or tire. Neither the sudden shock of battle nor the long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Give us the tools and we will finish the job. Welcome back to our conversation. With us today is the great-grandson of Sir Winston Churchill, Jonathan Sands. The book is called God and Churchill, How the Great Leader's Sense of Divine Destiny Changed His Troubled World and Offers Hope for Ours. That is one of my favorite speeches of your great-grandfather, Jonathan. I love the quote from Longfellow in there, and I think it's poignant because he refers, of course, to President Roosevelt. He had a very special relationship with President Roosevelt. And I recall, uh, I think, watching an interview with uh, your great-aunt Mary, where she spoke about um, your great-grandfather's first meeting with Roosevelt. Uh, They had both traveled out in very dangerous uh, U-boat-infested waters to meet uh, your great-grandfather aboard the uh, uh, HMS Prince of Wales and President Roosevelt aboard the USS Augusta. And um, after a time of meeting and conversations, they they finished their time together toward the end of that week in a a joint service that was held aboard deck of the uh, Prince of Wales. And that service is one that had been entirely orchestrated by your great-grandfather. He selected the music, the hymns that were sung, uh, even the scripture readings that day. And um, Mary later quoted him as saying that even if he and Roosevelt had not been able to come to any kind of a meeting of the minds. I think ultimately that conversation led to uh, the, the great Lend-Lease um, agreement uh, with Congress to, to provide armaments and ships to Great Britain. But that that meeting in particular had meant so terribly much to your great-grandfather and how it, it represented a coming together of the old world and the new world uh, in specific. But But uniquely so, I recall her talking about the kind of effort that your great-grandfather put into selecting both the musical hymns and the scripture readings of that unique and special meeting. Yes, indeed. Churchill, obviously, that, that obviously springs from Elizabeth Everest, from her teaching him uh, those, those hymns. But the relationship that, that great-grandpa held with, with Roosevelt was vital, and actually that particular meeting was incredibly important. Remember, this was, this was literally months before Pearl Harbor, and it was absolutely vital for great-grandpa to show President Roosevelt that he was really serious about a partnership. And that, that meeting was so poignant for that. And actually, it ended up that he, he then, after Pearl Harbor had been bombed, he then returned to America unexpectedly uh, and stayed at the White House over Christmas. But he, he chose hymns that were very much, they, they resonated with him. They, they lifted people up. They gave you hope. And at that moment in time, sitting in those U-boat infested waters, as you put it, you know, it, the men must have felt fairly frightened and, and fairly worried about what was going on. And remember, you've got the Prime Minister of Great Britain sitting on there and you've got the President of the United States sitting um, on there. If anything happened, God forbid, you would go down in history as the person who had um, captained a ship or, or been a sailor on a ship that sank with the uh, with both those two great men on it. So you know, Churchill was mindful and and chose things that that uplifted people and certainly uplifted him. 
He had had not only a spectacular life, we mentioned earlier about having won a Nobel Peace Prize in literature, twice served at two different periods, 40 to 50, I'm sorry, 40 to 45 and 50 to 55 as prime minister. He had served as the chancellor of the exchequer, I guess that would be the the secretary of the treasury in in, uh, American parlance. He was also had something in common with um, President Roosevelt in that President Roosevelt had been the assistant secretary of the Navy, which essentially would be a similar position to um, your great-grandfather's role as the first lord of the admiralty. Yes, that is correct. He absolutely loved being First Lord of the Admiralty. And interestingly enough, he was, he was first appointed uh, in time for the, the First World War, some, some years before the First World War. And it was during the First World War that, that the Gallipoli disaster happened. And he, being the honourable man, unable to vind- use the cabinet papers to vindicate himself, he, honor- he was an honourable man and resigned and ended up posting, getting a posting to the French front at his request. Anyway, the day that uh, that war broke out, Prime Minister Chamberlain contacted Great Grandfather and asked him to serve again as First Lord of the Admiralty, to which Churchill accepted immediately. And a a uh, a, a, mo- a message was sent from the Admiralty to every single captain in the fleet to state simply, Winston is back. And everybody was thrilled that that was the case. And it's interesting because that is a role that he could have very easily eschewed. And I say that, Jonathan, because here is a man who had seen a lot of combat firsthand. Um, He served as first an Army officer. Uh, He was in the Second Boer War between 1899 and and 1902, uh, certainly in the First World War, and then kind of willingly offered up his services uh, right at the brink of the most difficult period for England. And, and sadly, a lot of school children today, I, I hope it's not true in, in Britain as much as it is over here in the, in the New World, but a lot of school children today don't really understand just how much trouble Great Britain found herself in by 1940 when your great-grandfather stepped into the role as prime minister. I mean, literally, Hitler had invaded the entirety of the continent. Uh, There was war between uh, Germany and the Soviet Union to the east. And, of course, he had literally steamrolled over all of the rest of Europe, finally managed to even capture France. And as I mentioned in my opening remarks, at the beginning of his role, one of the first and most difficult decisions that he had to deal with was the very great possibility that now that Germany had taken over and occupied France, they might very well be able to get their hands on the French Navy. And with all of those additional vessels at the disposal of the the German military, could have very easily crossed that channel and invaded Britain at the drop of a hat. Over the years, great-grandpa has, uh, all of this has been taken out of context, and great-grandpa has been accused of, of basically being a murderer for, for many of the actions that, that were taken during the war that were necessary actions. And I'm pleased that you, you've given me the opportunity to, to sort of speak about this and set the record straight here, because the sinking of the French fleet was the last thing that great-grandpa wanted to do, and it was actually a decision that haunted him for the rest of his life. He contacted... The, uh, the the Vichy government and said to them, look, uh, you need to give us your your ships. We need them in order to be able to, to continue fighting, otherwise we're going to lose the sea battle. And they said no. He said, okay, well, then will you please sink them 
so that the Germans don't get them. Because if the Germans get them, then that's it. That's the sea war over and done with. And, and then, you know, we can look forward to invaders actually on British soil. And once again, the government said no, because they didn't want to, to upset Hitler. And so Churchill made it very clear to them, OK, we, if you're not going to give them to us, or you're not going to sink them yourself, then I'm afraid that I'm going to have to sink them myself. And the French didn't believe him. And he sadly was forced to do that. They, they attempted to arrange uh, various parties and things like that to get as many sailors off the ships in these friendly ports as possible. And they got as many off as they could, but then they actually had to order the Royal Navy to, to, sink, um, to sink the ships. It was a terrible, terrible decision that he had to make, and it wasn't the last decision of, of that kind that he had to make, but it was a disastrous decision. And great-grandfather, in, in his defense, to prove that he was a, a man of humanity, that he didn't treat people the way that Hitler did. Hitler saw his people as cannon fodder, but Churchill valued every single life, whether it was the enemy life or whether it was um, the life of, 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 um, of his countrymen. When we were really bombing Berlin and really hitting them hard, at one stage, in, in complete uh, overcome with emotion, he shouted at a member of the war cabinet, my gosh, are, are you sure we're doing the right thing? Are we monsters? You know, are we not doing the wrong thing here? And um, he was afraid that we were going far too far because his view was wars are fought soldier to soldier. They are not fought with civilian populations. And, uh, you know, Hitler was the one who changed all of that. So these were decisions that Great Gaspar had to make. And as a leader at that time, he didn't really have a choice. You know, remember in, in 1940 when he became prime minister, there, he, there were two candidates. He was one, and the other was Lord Halifax. Now, Lord Halifax was an incredibly ambitious man and would have loved to have been prime minister, but he was not prepared to go down in history as the man who had handed the keys to Britain to Adolf Hitler, whereas Churchill firmly believed that it was possible that we could win. It might be too late, but as he said to the War Cabinet, if this, if this Long Island history of ours is to end, let it end only when we are lying on the floor choking in our own blood. And he was serious about it. Of course, one of the issues, too, had Halifax received that position, people forget about the fact that Halifax had the idea, and he, he voiced this many times, that he felt there could be a negotiated peace with Adolf Hitler. Now, your great-grandfather steadfastly stood against that because he realized, I think, the implications. It would have meant that Hitler would have stayed in power, Nazi Germany would have remained intact, their influence and control over many of the occupied territories would have continued. And as we learn following the invasion of France in June of 1944, and then, of course, as the Allies swept through uh, Germany in 1945 and began liberating the Nazi death camps, the issue of the, the terror that Hitler was bringing across the continent went far and wide above simply military efforts to try and capture additional territory. So it's, I think it's, again, Jonathan, one of those pivotal moments where he had to make very difficult decisions, but decisions that had to be made. I mean, reminding listeners here, half of France had sided, Vichy France had sided with Nazi Germany. Had Britain been invaded by the Nazis, and the British Expeditionary Forces, 
been forced to surrender to Nazi Germany. That would have been it. Western Europe, as we know it, would have ceased to exist, and any capacity of the United States at that point to step in and to help would have been so terribly uh, crippled, particularly post uh, December seventh of forty one, and fighting you know not just the 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 European theater but also the Pacific theater against the Japanese would have likely meant not only the loss in World War II to Nazi Germany, but likely even Japan would have won. And the world as we know it today might have been very different had your great-grandfather not made that painful but necessary decision to sink the French fleet. Well, Craig, further to this, as you, as you mentioned, you know, there were people who were very much in support of Hitler, and, and as you said, Halifax wanted to find peace with Hitler, and so did a lot of people throughout up until about 1943. But we can prove on, on two occasions, that, or with two instances, that Hitler would never have, have kept his word. And the first instance was obviously in, in the 1938 Munich Agreement, where he promised to only take back part of Czechoslovakia and end up taking up the entire country and we did absolutely nothing. But then if you want further proof of how a dictator like Adolf Hitler thinks, look at Stalin in 1946. Stalin reversed every single promise that he had made to both my great-grandfather and, and FDR during the Second World War. He had promised he was not going to, to try and dominate Europe with communism and he would not do these, these terrible things. But in 1946, that's precisely what he did. So for those people that really believed that Hitler could have been negotiated with, that you know, getting a sort of peace with him was possible, I point out those two things, that there was no negotiation with this person. He had made it clear in his book, Mein Kampf, he wanted to dominate Europe, and then from Europe, he wanted to dominate the world. And if Winston Churchill hadn't stepped in and said no and FDR hadn't come in and supported him and found an agreement with Lend-Lease, then, you know, I, would be, I wouldn't have been born. My, my entire family would have been sent to the gas chambers, you know, and, uh, you know, you would all be speaking German. Harsh reality, but in fact, history bears out exactly what Jonathan is sharing. We're going to take a time out. When we come back, we'll talk about the ongoing legacy of Winston Churchill and the hope that he offers for our current generation. Our visit with Jonathan Sands, the great-grandson of Sir Winston Churchill, continues in a moment. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 